But I try to help them understand that accepting this is necessary. It's going to happen to all of us. We're all on this journey. None of us are getting out of here. And some of us are closer than others. But the most important thing is, is that we all have to live every single day the best we can so that we can move forward and have a life that we can say was worth living and that we are with the people that we love and we care about. And we have a little bit of control at the end over what we do. Welcome to Difficult Conversations, lessons I learned as an ICU physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Way. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, this is the podcast for you. Well, I am honored today that the Orsini Way has partnered with the Finley Project to bring you this episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. The Finley Project is a nonprofit organization committed to providing care for mothers who have experienced the unimaginable, the loss of an infant. It was created by their founder, Noelle Moore, whose sweet daughter Finley died in 2013. It was at that time that Noelle realized that there was a large gap between leaving the hospital without your baby and the time when you get home that led her to start the Finley Project. The Finley Project is the nation's only seven-part holistic program that helps mothers after infant loss by supporting them physically and emotionally. They provide such things as mental health counseling, funeral arrangement support, grocery gift cards, professional house cleaning, professional massage therapy, and support group placement. The Finley Project has helped hundreds of women across the country, and I can tell you that I have seen personally how the Finley Project has literally saved the lives of mothers who lost their infant. If you are interested in learning more or referring a family or donating to this amazing cause, please go to thefinleyproject.org. The Finley Project believes that no family should walk out of a hospital without support. Well, welcome to another episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. This is Dr. Anthony Orsini, and I'll be your host again this week. Well, as many of you already know, it was early in my career as a training physician that I was very aware of how frequently physicians struggled navigating difficult conversations with patients, specifically when delivering sad or tragic news. In fact, in my very first podcast ever, which was the only one that I didn't interview a guest, I talk about the life-changing moment that led me to a 10-year quest to eventually develop the Break of Bad News program that started in 2010 and has now trained thousands of physicians and healthcare professionals across the country. As I mentioned many times, few people would realize that as a whole, physicians and healthcare professionals get very little training on communication skills, especially when it comes to delivering tragic news. One of the reasons that the Breaking Bad News program is so impactful, I believe, is that in addition to receiving feedback from other doctors, the participants also get feedback from non-medical instructors that have experienced real tragedy and can give real advice from firsthand experience. What I have found over the years is that communication is all about building trusting relationships with patients. 
physicians and healthcare providers who are able to be genuine and learn to relate through their own life experiences are able to provide the best care, especially during difficult times. Well, today I am honored and privileged to have as a guest, Michelle Atwell. It's safe to say that few healthcare professionals possess the depth and breadth of experience in the patient-caregiver dynamic that Michelle does. First, as a mother managing the diagnoses of the life-threatening illnesses to her daughter and her son, and now today in her role as physician assistant at a major healthcare system in Orlando, Florida. After the tragic loss to her first child and only daughter, Michelle, who had a successful career in the banking industry, was driven to invest her grief in the care and care of other patients battling similar afflictions. She began as volunteering with Shepherd's Hope Clinic, first as a member of the general volunteer staff, and today as a licensed healthcare provider. Michelle is a proud alumni of the University of Central Florida with a degree in life and biomedical science and social and behavioral science, and she now has a physician's assistant degree at Nova Southeastern University. Michelle didn't stop there. She's volunteered with Beautiful Feet International Mission Teams. She's in the middle of publishing a contributing article to an upcoming medical genetics textbook. She is a member of the American Association of Physicians Assistants and winner of the 2017 Nova Southeastern University PA Program Gold Standard Award. Well, welcome, Michelle. Thank you so much for being on today. I'm so glad to be here with you. I'm speaking with everyone. Great. Thank you for having us. Um, you know, I want to say we both work in the same healthcare system. And by the way, as always, I must disclose that neither Michelle nor I are representing that healthcare system and our views are solely our own. I always have to disclose that, you know, to make the lawyers happy. Michelle, although we work in the same healthcare system, since you work with adults and I work with pediatrics, our paths really never crossed until I think it was about a month ago, wouldn't you say? You did a training a few years ago, and I was a guest at the training, and I heard you speaking, and I was a brand new employee, wasn't even credentialed to work yet. And it was so interesting to hear your perspective and how you were teaching people to approach patients. And I thought, wow, that's great. I'm working for this great organization where they're really teaching these doctors how to talk to people, and it's so important. Even before I start, they're making sure I get this training. And I was really excited about that. And so then I looked you up again and I saw that you're doing all of this podcast and that you actually had a, an entire training program. And I was really impressed. And so just wanted to get back in touch with you. So you called me about a month ago and we spoke for about an hour. And you know, I want to say I was really moved by our conversation and your journey. And so we'll get this right off the bat. I'm, I'm a big fan of you and what you've gone through and, and where you've come right now. So I, I want to say right away that your story was deeply moving to me and is very important. To my audience, I'd like to have Michelle take you through her journey because, you know, I always promise the audience the same thing, that they'll be inspired and learn communication skills. And today, your story is so inspiring. And I think this, we're going to learn so much in the next hour from you. But if you would, let's just take the audience along your journey and where you started with your daughter, Victoria. You're in the banking industry, as I said in the intro, and then your daughter gets sick. So can you just tell us about that a little bit? And specifically, as you go through her story, some of the conversations that you had to have with the medical professionals. So my daughter was in 
fourth, it was the summer between fourth and fifth grade. And she was starting to have some issues where she would kind of get sick and throw up a little bit here and there. And I didn't really know what was going on. And so I took her to her pediatrician and I said, there's, you know, something going on here. She's starting to feel sick more often. And I had been divorced. I had just gotten divorced like maybe in the last six months before that. And the pediatrician really said to me, you know, it could be that she's upset about your divorce or she could be having onset of menses. And so it could be just emotional. And let's start with changing her diet. So I changed her diet and we went to therapy, did all the things that that you should do. And it wasn't improving. So after about two or three months of that, there was more. Now I'm having headaches and I'm also throwing up more. And I thought, this doesn't seem right. So I took her back in. I said, we changed the diet. We did everything you said. Still, it's happening. And she goes, I think your daughter just wants some attention from you. And so I was doing everything to give her a lot of attention. And she goes, but at any rate, let's get you some propanolol, which is a beta blocker. I knew nothing about any of this. I was working in a bank and I was very young. And I thought, great, they gave her beta blocker. We're going to take this beta blocker. And that started sometime after Thanksgiving, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, that we were having this beta blocker. And it helped with anxiety, but and there wasn't quite so much throwing up. But in the meantime, we were noticing that her hands were starting to shake too. And part of me was the mom saying, well, you're kind of being dramatic. Please stop that. But then there was the other part of me saying, you need to drink your soup with a straw instead of having a spoon. And so we went home for Christmas and my mom said, this is very unusual. She hadn't seen us since summertime. And so for her, the change was so drastic. She's like, it's completely different. Like she doesn't feel well all the time. And I said, what could be the medicine? She's taking this medicine. And my mom said, no, you have to go back to that pediatrician. There's gotta be more than this. And so we came home from Christmas break and I went to the pediatrician and I said, my mom insists that something be done. This is not the right answer. And in the meantime, while we're waiting for that appointment for a neurologist, I had a customer come into the bank and her husband had Parkinson's disease. I had no idea what was going on with the husband. I just knew that he was this old guy and he had some unusual mannerisms. And it reminded me of what I was starting to see at home with my daughter. And so I asked her, what, what is it that your husband has? And she goes, well, he has a neurological condition called Parkinson's disease. And I said, do kids ever get that so innocently? And she said, no, kids don't get that. And some of the things he does, the way he's holding his hands and things are very similar to my daughter. And she said, you have to get that checked right away. And I told her we had this upcoming appointment. And so we came the day that we went to the neurologist's office. The neurologist was great. He did his exam, a great neuro exam. And he immediately said, we're going to send you across the hall or down the hall to get an MRI done. And so we went straight away to do that. And I thought, well, this is unusual. I fought so hard to get here. And now they're just doing everything right away. But I lived in Vero Beach. This was Melbourne. I thought, wow, I'm in the big city. They're getting everything done quickly. So he sends me down there. And so while they're doing it, the gentleman that was doing the scan, I was in the room and I thought, well, I don't know anything about this, but it looks weird. There's like a butterfly in her brain. And I thought, well, that's really cool. It looks like there's a butterfly. Of course, my daughter's in fifth grade. Butterflies are cool. Mm -hmm. I just think it's really pretty. And so the guy says, well, we're going to need to get you some lunch. The doctor wants you to wait here and then he's going to have you go back to the office. 
And I said, well, is this the normal way that things are done? And he says, well, not usually. Usually we're able to have people come back and get their results later. And at that point, it was kind of dawning on me that this was an unusual progression of a day at a doctor's office. My daughter had always been healthy, so I'd never seen any kind of thing like this where it was see the doctor, do the test, go back right away, get the results. But he brought me into the room and he said, well, what you suspected was right. There is something that's unusual. We did find that there is this tumor. And so he starts throwing a lot of big words at me, bilateral thalamic and things that I had no idea what any of this meant. And I said, so you're saying, and how big is it? And he goes, well, it's the size of a tangerine. So maybe five to eight centimeters. Of course, I don't know what five to eight centimeters are. So I'm thinking that's pretty big. And is that the butterfly? And so he actually pulled up the the film and put it on the wall, old school. Mm -hmm. Let me look at it. And he said, yes, and we're going to need you to go right away to have a neurosurgeon look at this. And I said, well, is there any way it could be anything else? Because this doesn't seem likely. She's always been healthy. We don't have any, you know, she's not been sick. And he said, well, how long has this vomiting been going on? And I told him it was maybe six or eight months. And he said, well, that was the first time that really she was having any impact. And prior to that, it had been there, but it had been growing unchecked because it was in an area called the ventricles, which are like a lake or a river. Mm -hmm. And so there was plenty of room for the growth without really affecting too much of the function. So from there, I remember calling my boss. My daughter was super excited, though, because she said, yay, it's a tumor. I'm so excited. It's not that I'm just really bad at handwriting anymore. And she was making jokes about talking like Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's a tumor. And so she was very funny. And I remember being in the car and I had to call my boss and say, yeah, so it's just a tumor. I fully expect to be at work tomorrow. Be no problem. But on Friday, they want me to go to Arnold Palmer. And I'm going to go have to see this neurosurgeon and, but everything will be fine. I'll be back at work. No problem. And my boss was so wise. And she said, how about you give me a call back later when everything is kind of settled down and let me know what you think. So in retrospect, if you don't mind me interrupting. So the neurologist says tumor at that point, you, you didn't really understand the severity of it. Or so you just thought this was a easy. I thought it was a mistake. I really thought it was a mistake. There was no way that my daughter had a tumor. Okay. Number one. Number two, just impossible that it was what he was saying. There's no way it's where it is. There's no way it's that big. The The pictures were wrong. Something was wrong. And I was completely and totally in shock. I don't remember much of the other things that he said. Tell us about the conversation when you first understood the seriousness of the diagnosis with doctor was it the neurosurgeon that I was the neurosurgeon so the next morning I went to school and I took her to check her in and I told the front office you have to check your them in and I said she's got a brain tumor and she's got to go to this appointment and I'm kind of in shock I don't know what I need to do and the secretary said you know there's another kid here who has a brain tumor and I'm going to get her mom to talk to you and I thought oh this is great there's another mom And so this other mom contacted me and she said that she'd been seen in Boston. And she said, do not go to the local people. This is Florida. There's no good healthcare here. You have to go to the (laughs) Northeast. That's where all the good healthcare is in America. You must go Northeast. And so she sent me up to this neurosurgeon and she did all the phone calls. This mom was terrific. She called the office at Brigham and Women's. She was able to say, this mom needs an appointment. 
Another friend of hers, the mom bought, had her friend donate money and bought me a ticket. Literally, we were in Vero Beach on Wednesday getting a diagnosis. And on Friday, we were in Boston at one o'clock sitting in an office 48 hours later at this neurologist's office, this very well-known neurologist. And tell us about that conversation when he came in to tell you the news. That was a very difficult day because he said that he had reviewed the films and that it was a really large tumor. And based on the location, that doing a surgery would be impossible. He said that because it was bilateral, meaning on both sides of the brain, that there could be too much damage to the optic nerve, to her cerebellum, and that she could have physical deficits, things that she wasn't already experiencing and that they wouldn't be able to do that. There would be no way for them to debulk the tumor at all. And I said, well, well, how do you know what kind of tumor it is or how do we know how bad it is? And if it was there a long time, it's got to be slow growing. So it's probably going to be fine, right? Like, what, what are we going to do? And he said, well, let's do the biopsy and I'll be able to give you some more information. And so at this point, still, I don't have a good idea of what's going on. But we checked into the Ronald McDonald house that afternoon. And that's when it became very obvious to me that I was now a member of a club that no one wants to be in. And that's the mom of a very sick, possibly terminally ill child. And that it was going to be very difficult from here on. And so there were pictures of the kids on the wall, kids that had been treated at the same facility and who had seen the same surgeon. And there was even a ward of this Ronald McDonald house where the bone marrow transplant kids lived. And so you couldn't go down there. And we would sit at the table and we were eating with children that their hair was falling out in their soup. They were so sick. And the scared look, the hollow faces of all the other moms and was so hard for me to believe that this was actually really happening to me. And it was just the two of us. I was a single mom at that point. So it's just me and my daughter and she was my whole world. And I felt that wasn't going to be the case. And I was super scared. And so when he actually did the surgery the following week, he came from the biopsy and dad had arrived at the time of the biopsy. He was there for results. And we were in the waiting room and he came out and he says, we were able to get a, a piece of the tumor. And I said, well, it really was a tumor. I kept thinking maybe it was just water or some kind of cyst. Maybe it's not mm -hmm. really a solid tumor because we were able to get a piece of the tumor and I'll get that down to the lab. And so this was maybe only five days, six days later, I literally threw up in the floor of the family waiting room because it was so unbelievable to me that it was actually real at that point. And he goes, I'm going to have to let you know, based on these uh, biopsy findings, how bad this tumor is, and then what the treatment plan will be after that, that we'll get it over to the tumor board, and they will make a good plan. And so that's, that was that conversation. It was just extremely difficult. He was all in his scrubs, and he stayed distant from me. So he was very to the point. It was, we're going to find out. We've got some of it. We're going to find out more. So as we say, when we're teaching the classes, I'm sure you would agree that at that moment, the doctor delivered that news, your life changed forever. And you think it's safe to say that you remember everything about that conversation, it sounds like. Yep. I remember the, the look of the tile on the floor. I could tell you right now, that floor versus any other hospital floor, everything about it. And that started a long journey 
with Victoria with multiple procedures and chemotherapy. And sadly, Victoria passed in uh, November. It was 2003. So she fought for 30 months. We went through all of the treatment protocols, chemotherapy, radiation. So she was so sad when she got home from Boston and she realized that we went to the radiation appointment to get fitted for the skull helmet that they wear during radiation mm-hmm. for stereotactic radiation. And she was doing all this fitting and she goes, why do I have to do this? I already had brain surgery. And mm-hmm. the doctor said, well, they didn't get the tumor out. And she just started crying. That's and what you told her? Th- yeah. I had told her that they took a biopsy, but I guess I didn't realize as her mom that I hadn't said the tumor was not there anymore. I, I did never clarified to her that tumor was still there. So that day she went home and she actually contacted a friend of mine whose husband had been in the military. And she said, can you shave my head? I want the military cut. I I do not want to have chemotherapy. She's 11 years old. She's 11. She called my friend and said, I want to cut my hair. And so she cut her head shaved because she wanted to go back to school different. And at that time, there was this Jim Carrey movie, The Mask. Mm -hmm. And literally, when she got the haircut, she goes, somebody stop me. And she had such a sense of humor. And she goes, all I need is some really big teeth so that I can really make this work. And so she just had such a great sense of humor. And I realized we were going to need that. And so I really tried to lean into her way of looking at things. But she shaved her head. It was done by the time I got home from work. I had no choice. (laughs) So she started doing things on her own. There was a big field trip for all the fifth graders. And she goes, I planned on going to get Tallahassee and I'm going, right, mom? And the school was kind of afraid. I said, you know what? Nothing bad's going to happen on this trip worse than what's already happening. She went on the trip. We did radiation. The tumor grew. We did chemotherapy. The tumor stayed stable. There were lots of trips back and forth. So in Orlando, I was being seen by a team, a bunch of different doctors. And so I was being seen by Nemours and I was being seen at, it was called the Walt Disney Children's, but it was at what is now Advent Health, a great doctor there, but he was an adult neuro-oncologist. There wasn't a pediatric neuro-oncologist in Orlando. So I was kind of piecing together, this guy does oncology for kids, this guy does neuro-oncology, so I can put these two guys together and We have a pediatrician back in Vero who can coordinate something. So there was a lot of coordinating on my part. A lot of conversations along the way, just to bring it back to there. And when you contacted me about your experience on the patient family side, and now as a physician's assistant, as I said in the intro, few people really have that perspective in medicine on both sides of that. We had a couple of guests. My niece was an early guest and she had I'm so proud of her. She had cancer and survived leukemia, lymphoma, sorry, and is now a pediatric cancer nurse. But along the way, can you give us some memories of maybe one particular physician, you don't have to say the name, who in somehow made it a little bit better by the way he or she communicated and maybe tell us about a conversation or maybe it was that first conversation with the neurosurgeon that seemed to because of the lack of communication skills, maybe made things a little worse. So the neurosurgeon was an excellent neurosurgeon. He had a great team, but basically they just handed me back and said, we are not going to be able to do anything more because we're neurosurgeons and you can't have a surgery and you're going to need to contact some people down there. And that's when I was 
looking for who's going to take care of this. And the one doctor that was just the oncologist who didn't feel real comfortable talking about how we were going to approach this brain tumor, and it was really inoperable. And I did have a very unfortunate incident happen with them. And that's what made me look for a different practice and why I ended up going to Duke. He actually said, this is so unusual. May I have students come and speak to your daughter? And I thought one or two, maybe, or maybe one at a time. He sent a pack of students and it must have been eight or 10 residents that came in. And I felt like we were in a zoo. Like my daughter was a specimen that everyone was looking at. And it really freaked her out. She goes, is it really so weird? I mean, is it so bad, mom? And I thought, I don't know. I have no idea. And as I say, doctors really, I believe, are all compassionate, as you probably know right now. But sometimes Mm -hmm. we really have to remind ourselves that medicine at its best is a human-to-human interaction. And when I teach patient experience, as Michelle sometimes, and we don't mean anything by it, but you'll you'll hear nurses and physicians talk about the kidney patient in 302 Uh and the heart patient in 4, and that's what made you feel that I think your daughter used the word specimen. Is that what yeah. she used? That's, she said, I'm just at specimen. 11 years old. That's remarkable. And then looking back, you go to Duke and was there a particular, I think I know the answer to this. Was there a particular doctor that just seemed to make things a little bit better? Yes. So then they have a team, they have this, the Duke brain tumor group. And so I had heard of these doctors on a, basically like a Facebook group, but back then we didn't have Facebook. It was some group that we would text each other late at night on the computer. And they were talking about the Freedmans and these guys would fight for their patients. And so, and I said, wow, I want to be part of this. I want to be fighting this thing as much as possible. And so they had all of the team. And so the doctor would come in and he would explain what was going on. But then he had the child life specialist and the other teams. And he had people who were looking at the lungs and the eyes and the physical PT and OT and neuropsych. And they were just able to let us know that this affects the entire child. It affects your entire family. And we're here to support you in all of these ways. And they really were putting everything together. They even worked with the doctors here and they said, this is who you need to see. And they streamlined the process for us. And they said, this is where you're going to go. This is who you're going to see. We are going to communicate about these things on our end. You don't have to, as a mom. Walk around carrying MRIs wherever you go and all the last doctor's notes because I had to have everything with me all the time. This is because doctors weren't talking to each other. So I felt like I was just the keeper of the information and I wasn't being the mom, you know, that was noticing all the other things that were going on. So when they started coordinating their care and talking to each other and these doctors were working together and they were coordinated is the biggest thing, I think. And they were taking care of her and me. And they were making sure that we were taken care of physically, mentally, emotionally, and even financially. They worked with the social workers to help. We've got in touch with Ronald McDonald. This is where the address for that is. We didn't have GPS back then. I would drive with my little (laughs) map and I would write down, I'm going to take the second left and I'm going to go to this Ronald McDonald house. And I would walk in and I would say the person's name and they would say, yes, we have a room for you. You're going to be here for three days. What a great experience that you had there with them. And in my book and in the Breaking Bad News program, and now that you're an instructor, you've heard me say this before, 
we talk about the three goals of discussing tragic news. One is to show your compassion, which clearly it sounds like that neurosurgeon didn't have much, or and even the, the neurologist who said brought in all the students. But two is show them that you're the expert in the room. And as I say in my classes and in the book, the patient should feel as if they could figuratively put their arms around your shoulder and you will lead them to the next step. And as you're speaking, I'm feeling really good about myself because I see just a tiny smile on your face when you talk about Duke. And clearly they had an impact, but clearly it was that you really felt that you were in good hands, right? Absolutely. No one had told us before what the prognosis was. It was Duke. And yeah. I was already maybe four months into it at the point I got in touch with them. Like, what's the prognosis? What does this road look like? What do I have to do? What can I expect to happen? And no one had really sat down and giving me a comprehensive look at that. Everyone had told me their part. The surgeon was excellent, but it was all about this is what you can expect after the surgery. This is what we can do. The radiation oncologist, this is what radiation is like. And this is what we do after that. But Duke was able to give us the entire perspective of what all of it looked like, the good and the bad. And I think that was the biggest thing was he didn't shy away from the fact that we were getting ready to go into a very difficult thing and it was going to be really hard, but that we weren't doing it all alone. And it wasn't just giving us a tiny bit and saying, this is fine, we've got this one part, but we're not going to tell you all the rest of it. We really knew what it was. And we were able to look at the thing and say, okay, so we're going to do all of this and we could still have a really bad outcome. But along the way, there's going to be these supports and we're going to be in this guy's trusted hands. And that guy was with me the whole time. And he's now in Florida. I'm so happy that he's in Florida. When I found out he came to Florida, I called him and I thanked him for coming here. And Michelle, you can say his name. Oh, good. Dr. Sri Gururangan. Dr. Gururangan, if you're out there, thank you. He's at University of Florida now, and he's running their neuro-oncology center there. Fabulous at Shands. So, so happy that he's here and we're having this care available in Florida because I was literally driving my old Honda, <laughs> you know, 850 miles each way. But when she got really sick at the end and we were changing so quickly, I just had to get to Duke. I'm like, I have to have the doctor at Duke see her to tell me what's happening. It was a seizure that signaled the end that there was a big change. Something happened. She wasn't speaking correctly anymore. I now know that's called word salad and that the brain tumor had grown a lot. And so I even remember calling him and he answered his phone on a Saturday morning and he was at his kid's soccer game. And I said, is hospice the right thing to do now? Is this what you would do? And he said, you've done the, everything else that you could do medically. And as a mom, this is what you can do. And it's okay to do that. And I felt like I needed his permission to give up because he had fought with me so hard for so long. It was almost three years. I saw him every 10 weeks for three years. He was part of my life and part of my family. And I just felt like he was just taking care of us. You said you needed his permission. And, and I think that's many of the, that happens a lot when we're dealing with end of life. We're going to have Dr. Knopps on uh, in a few weeks. And Dr. Knopp is one of the most amazing palliative care people I've ever met. And I've learned a lot from her. But in the NICU and even end of life, when we teach about end of life discussions, many people are, in fact, looking for permission. Not that they need our permission, but they need somebody to say who's the expert in the room. Once he established with you that he was the expert in the room, that to say, that's okay. 
it's a loving thing to do as a parent. And so it, it's amazing that you said that. So sadly, Victoria passes on November 14, 2003. I can't imagine how difficult that must have been for you. And then you trying to get through this. You're still a banker at this point? Still in banking. So luckily, when all of this is happening, you might remember September 11th also happened. And yeah. I had been working in the bank a really long time. So I had a lot of stock. And I cashed out my stock right before September 11th happened because I needed to pay and be out of work. So I had cashed out my stock when I think Bank of America was 60 something dollars a share. So really high. And I had a nice little nest egg of money. I had gone back to work while she was sick and having chemo. But for the first maybe four or six months, I was out. So I had this money and I was able to take some time off. But after she passed in November, I thought I needed to be home. And I was home about a month and I couldn't be home anymore. And I got in touch with a friend of mine and she said, we need you back. We need you to come back to work. And I said, I don't think I can do it. And she goes, we're here, we're your team, we're, you can come back. And so I went to work for a, a smaller community bank with people who were my friends. I was very happy to be there. And so I, I worked full-time all day, Monday through Friday, eight until five and until six on Fridays. And then I also went to school full-time and that was just taking some classes. I did not ever want to have one minute of my day that was not occupied. So I went to school full-time and I worked full-time. And I just, I went from bed to work, to school, to bed for six months. Trying to keep busy. Staying busy and just trying to put one foot in front of the other and maintain some semblance of normalcy in my life. And so that was a very difficult recovery. And then in September of 2005, <laughs> what happened in September 2005? So I met and got married to the most wonderful husband ever. 16 years now, we've been married. And I was pregnant. And in September, I went into labor a couple of weeks early. And so our little boy was on the way and we were so excited. We went to our local hospital. We had done our hospital plan to have him. There was absolutely no indication that there was going to be anything but a normal delivery. I had a normal delivery of my daughter. I thought it was going to be uh, just a perfect delivery. We went to the local hospital. And when he was born... Usually there's that moment, you know, they kind of cut the cord and they hand you the baby. And I was so looking forward to that minute. I'd been without my daughter as mm -hmm. herself since 2001. So this is 2005. It's been five long years. Here's this baby and I'm going to hold this baby. And they didn't hand him to me. And I'm like, what is happening? They should have handed the baby. And my husband is a first time dad. So he doesn't know what's happening. He's like, I don't know. There's a bunch of people over there. I said, what kind of people are they? What are they doing? And he goes, they're putting a mask on him. And I said, well, he shouldn't need a mask. He's a newborn. And I couldn't remember, did he cry? Did he cry? And they said, yeah, he cried. And so I asked the nurse, what happened? You know, well, his Apgar was great. He was a 10. But then he dropped really suddenly and I had no idea what they were talking about. I just knew that something was wrong. He's not getting enough oxygen. I thought, well, there's not been a problem. I'm advanced maternal age. I've had these scans the whole time. There shouldn't be a problem. This is a perfect baby. They've promised me all along. I did all the testing to make sure everything was fine. But that was not the case. So they put him with oxygen that we weren't allowed to really hold him. He was in a box. They move him into some special unit. I'm 
which is struggling to understand what's happening. My OB doctor comes in and I said, what happened? It, it was a perfect pregnancy. I didn't have any problems. I mean, I had to do a blood thinner. I, get, I gave myself a shot every day for nine months. And so I could have this baby and everything should be fine. And, and they said that there was something wrong and he was blue. He was a blue baby. And I said, well, why? What's wrong? Is it his lungs? They were always fine. And they said, no, it's his heart. And I thought, this is impossible. I did everything. I did everything I was supposed to do. And so they said that they were going to change him to a different hospital. They were taking him downtown to the hospital where they had some pediatric doctors who could help them because the, the doctors in the hospital where we were really didn't know what to do. And I thought, well, this is impossible. I cannot go through this again. I just went through this. I cannot have this happen to me again. Too much for anybody to have to endure. Too much. And I thought, well, I cannot be in this room. I can't be here. I cannot have my son in another hospital if I'm not there. And so at this point, I did learn a few things on my previous. <laughs> and I said, I want to know exactly. I started asking the people in the unit, who's the best person to go to for this kind of problem? If this was your kid, where would you send them? Who has the best outcomes? What are the typical survival in a situation like this? I want to leave AMA right now. Against medical advice, yes. I want to go. And of course, there was a whole lot of pushback. No, it hasn't been. wasn't even three hours, I don't think. And so meanwhile, my son is put into an ambulance and he's taken downtown and I'm still there and I'm convincing everyone that I'm leaving, whether they give me permission or not. I call the, the OB doctor and I say, I have got to go. I can't. I can't not be where my son is. If he's going to leave this world, I'm going to be in the room. I'm going to be there with him. I have to go. And so he signed papers and I was able to go. And so we went downtown and we met Dr. Garcia. He's a pediatric cardiologist and he's amazing. He came into the room and he was, it's been a long day for you. I said, yes, it's been difficult. He said, I can't believe you were able to get here. And I said, well, thank you. And he goes, so as your son got here this afternoon, we were able to do the testing. And here's what we found. Big words again, lots of them. We have a transposition of the great vessels. There is one thing is going over the other thing. Your son's blood isn't going out to his body. It keeps recirculating the oxygenated blood into the lungs to the heart, but it never goes to the body. It's incompatible with life. He used that word. <laughs> incompatible with life. And he goes... And I said, well, where, what, what do we do now? And he said, well, we have surgeons. You can go to Tampa or you can go to Miami. And Tampa's closer and family's closer. And I said, well, I want to know about the outcomes, all these questions that I asked earlier of the team in Altamont. I asked the exact same questions and they recommended we, that Tampa had very good outcomes. So did Miami just make a choice, whatever's most convenient for your family. But he took the time to sit and draw the picture of the heart for me. Show me where the vessels were going. Tell me exactly what the surgery would look like, how many surgeries the surgeon had done, how these outcomes are, all the, the patients that he has that come back from this and how he treats them until they're adults and even into adulthood and all the good outcomes that he's had. And I thought, okay, I believe you. I'll sign the paper so my son can go to another hospital for all of this next part. And so... So he goes to Tampa and mm -hmm. he has his surgery, mm -hmm. more difficult conversations. I can't imagine what you're thinking right now after what happened to Victoria. 
Yeah. So um, this was Lucas. Then, so Lucas is the boy and he's born and okay. he's Victoria's first brother. And so Lucas was so amazing. He was just so beautiful. And uh, but the doctors start explaining about surgeries. Surgeons are so different than all the other doctors. They know exactly <laughs> what they're going to do. And it's so clear to them what's going to happen. And they have these conversations all the time. But it just seems to me like they're so familiar with it. They don't realize how hard it is for us to imagine that they're going to take some tool and they're going to cut right into your kid (laughs) and that somehow we're supposed to believe that's all going to be okay. And then at the end of it, you have to sign a paper saying, but if it isn't, I already know that. I already know that this may end in death. At the end of all of them, it's and death. And it's really awful as a parent to have to, to say, I know that this could lead to death, but I'm counting on you that it's not going to. And it's not, I don't believe it's really in the doctor's hands. I mean, I know we do everything we can, but at some point it's much higher than us and things will go the way they're going to go. But doctors yeah, do the best that they can. But he, they came in and he was, he told me about the patients that he saw and the great outcomes that he's had. And I just felt really comfortable. And he warned me, thankfully, about what after surgery was going to look like, because that's what you cannot be prepared for. Mm -hmm. All the tubes and the swelling and your kid doesn't look like a baby anymore. It's an awful thing. He looked like some kind of a freakish Halloween so tubes are coming out everywhere. There's lines. Tubes There's and monitors. Monitors. And it was so nice. Lucas comes home on his due date or basically, basically on his due date. Yeah. So, wow, what a great story that is. I mean, thank, thank God it, it worked out, but I, I can't imagine what you went through the second time. Mm-hmm. But you've been through the ringer, mm-hmm. to say the least. Yeah. And unimaginable pain bad obstacles to go through with healthcare of your children. And many people would say, I never want to see another doctor again. (laughs) And I never want to enter a hospital again. But you do something quite differently. You decide you want to go and help people. Uh, So how do you go from those two really horrible experiences? And thankfully, Lucas is doing well, yes? Yes, he's doing great. 15 years old. And you have another son, Jacob. And I do. Jacob is almost 13. So two very healthy boys that enjoy life and are very active and which is a good thing. So now you have a conversation with yourself. You say, Michelle, well, I had a conversation with a therapist. (laughs) 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 So after Jake, between Lucas and Jacob, I was okay. It seemed like everything was fine. And there's about two years difference. But when Jacob came along, I started really going through the stages of grief that I had a perfect life. I lived in a perfect home. I had a great husband, two beautiful children. And yet there was this sadness. And I thought, what is going on? Why can't I just be happy? I should be happy. I have everything I could want and everything I never thought was possible. And why can't I be happy? So I started seeing a therapist. And part of the therapy was really looking. And she would say, well, we have to look at this. And so I would look at things and I would say, it doesn't make any sense. None of this makes any sense. I don't understand. And she says, well, have you found you again? Then, Because I had been a, a single mom working and everything and used to 
doing my own thing. And I was a stay-at-home mom at that point. And she goes, well, what do you do that's just for you? And the answer was absolutely nothing at all. Many parents say the same thing, yeah. It's really hard to be a stay-at-home mom. So shout out to all the stay-at-home moms that are out there finding their way, especially after maybe you've had a very successful career. It's very challenging. So my therapist said, well, you've got to do something that's just for you. And I thought, well, I want to learn about this brain tumor thing. How did this happen? It was such a shock to me. And how did I not know? It was the mom guilt. Why didn't you realize something was wrong six or seven months sooner? You could have done something better. So I go over to UCF and it was great. I said, I would like to be a non-degree seeking student. And I just want to take this class on neurobiology. And it's a junior level course. And The reason I had to be non-degree seeking is I didn't have a medical or pre-med or any of the prerequisites needed, and they wouldn't let me take the course. And I said, well, I'm non-degree seeking. I just really just want to sit in and find out what this is all about. And they said, well, okay. And I did great, and I really enjoyed the course. And so I thought, well, this is neat. I'll take another course or two. And so I started taking these courses, and I found a lot of information. So you guys learn a lot in medical school. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm like, well, this explains everything. I can see exactly all the things I should have done. And I kept taking the classes. I, I got to be in a lab. I got to see brains and pathology, and it was really exciting. And at some point along the way, one of my professors said, well, you're here with all these pre-med students. What school are you planning on going to? And I said, oh, no, I'm just, I'm not going into medicine. I'm not going to be doing that. He said, well, you really need to do that. And locally, everybody knows Dr. Sam because he teaches over (laughs) UCF and everyone has to get through his anatomy course in order to become a doctor. And everyone knows that. So he really encouraged me, said, you should do it. And I said, I have two little kids at home. And with my tragic loss, I didn't want to waste time. Mm-hmm. I did, I, there was not enough time to spend with them anyway. So I was only taking a couple of like class two days a week when they were in school. So I didn't want to waste their time. But as they were getting older, they were going to day school a couple, two or three days a week and I would go to school. And so I'm part-time and no one's part-time pre-med. Everybody knows when you're pre-med. No such thing. <laughs> and <laughs> people right. would say that to me, how are you doing this part-time? And I said, well, if it works out and if it doesn't, I've learned a lot. And so I just kept going. And at some point, the banker in me said, is this financially worth the time and effort you're putting in? And you're about to spend a lot of money. And Mm -hmm. I said, okay. And so I had to sit down and make the spreadsheet. And I decided the best thing for me to do was take the courses that could get me a job in healthcare that I could find out. So I started volunteering. That was a pat. And those doctors were like, you should do it. You're missing nothing. But it was an outpatient clinic and there wasn't anything terribly tragic going on most of the days. And so I said, I'll go be a scribe at an ER. And if I can take that blood, I probably could do okay. (laughs) And it was bloody. (laughs) And there were people coming in with all kinds of situations. And I was so happy. And I realized that I, the reason I was so miserable in the bank is I had gotten used to the level of urgency that was possible in that environment. And also knowing what to do, seeing the situation, handling the situation that I got used to it. I really got used to the flow of a hospital, the beeping, the everything. And I missed it when I was not in a hospital, but I didn't want to be sick anymore. I didn't want to have a sick child. I just wanted to be there and I was going to do it no matter what. So when I interviewed for the PA program, one of the doctors that was interviewing me said, well, you already are a very successful person. You have this career, you have these children, and you're obviously doing well in your personal life. Why would you come and do this? Why would you put yourself through what you're going to go through to get this degree? 
And I said, well, here's the thing. I'm going to do it whether or not I have a degree or not. And I will volunteer forever, but I am going to be helping people one way or another. And I'm going to do it whether I'm getting paid or not, because I'm okay with that. I can do it for free, but this is what I'm going to do. And that was a sufficient enough answer in my interview. Well, there were a whole bunch of other questions, but that was, Mm -hmm. I think, the one that really made me decide right then and there that whether I got into that school or not, I was going to continue helping people. And I had already been doing all of the things. I had done fundraisers and for the National Children's Cancer Society, for March of Dimes, for Brain Tumor Center, for all kinds of fundraisers. But this was where I wanted to be. I was going to be helping one way or another. Fantastic. So you get your PA degree. We're running out of time. So I want to get some real good advice. You get your PA degree and now you're PA treating congestive heart failure, cardiac adults. And as I said in my intro, few people have the experience that you have that can really help your patients for the physicians, the nurses, the PAs, the NMPs, nurse practitioners, all the people out there that treat patients. And many of us don't have the experience that you have. We're not as we're more fortunate than you are. We most people haven't had the experience of losing a child. How do you use that? And what advice can you give to people after you've had all these conversations, good and bad, great experience at Duke? Other experiences, not so much. How do you use that, Michelle, if at all, uh, while you take care of your patients? How do you think it's impacted you? I look at every single patient and family as if it were me and my daughter or me and my son. And I think about where they are in the process. So some of them are newly diagnosed. So it's brand new, fresh. They're scared to death and they just need someone to let them know what the road looks like. Some of them have been in it a while and they're tired of fighting or they're really used to how things are going, but they're kind of scared about what the future looks like. And I want them to understand what those outcomes can look like and that I'm there. I'm a fighter with them. And then I'm also there in stage and I help a lot of patients and their families understand that we've come to the point where I'm doing everything I can and you've done everything you can. But the outcome that's happening now is we need to prepare for the next stage. And that is where I try to really let them know that it's okay to stop fighting because children will try to make their parents stay and fight longer. And it's really hard for the parents because they don't want to let their kids down and husbands don't want to let their wives down and they feel like it's a losing battle. But I try to help them understand that accepting this is necessary It's going to happen to all of us. We're all on this journey. None of us are getting out of here. And some of us are closer than others. But the most important thing is, is that we all have to live every single day the best we can so that we can move forward and have a life that we can say was worth living and that we are with the people that we love and we care about. And we have a little bit of control at the end over what we do. That's just so beautifully put and i wish this were a video podcast we can see your face because there's so much authenticity to your facial expressions and whether you choose to share your journey with your patient or not when you speak about the decisions that need to be made and the journey and just when you speak about allowing people the permission your face really says it all michelle like you can see there's some genuine credibility to what you're saying in your tone of your voice And through this really difficult journey of yours, that's a true gift that ends up for your patients. And that's why 
you said in the intro how I'm really a fan and I'm really in awe of where you've come from to where you are now and your patience through your going to school for PA at, with two children. <laughs> after all that, your patients are really the ones that are really getting the benefit of that. And so that's really just incredible. Uh, this has been an inspiring story. Michelle is now going to be working with me, just so everybody knows, in the Breaking Bad News program. And she will be teaching physicians and healthcare providers alongside me, teaching them from both the patient family point of view, but also from the doctor PA point of view. And that is a gift that she's going to be giving to all these doctors that we train. I'm really privileged and honored that you have chosen to work with me and honored that you have agreed to tell your story today. I, you have shared with me before that this is a difficult time of year for you as many people with a loss. And I wanted to be sensitive to that. And I appreciate that you are willing to tell your story for the benefit of my audience and for any other patients, family members that are out there going through the losses. So this has been an amazing hour. And I just want to thank you so much for being on this episode. I really do. Is there anything you want to say before we uh, close out? Be safe over the holidays <laughs> and enjoy the time with your family. Even the things that are awkward end up being the fondest memories that you miss. Thank you, Michelle, so much. We really appreciate having you on. If you like this podcast, please go ahead and hit subscribe. Tell your family and friends about the podcast. Go ahead and download all the previous episodes. If you want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at theorsiniway.com. We're going to be here each and every Tuesday. So tune in and subscribe now. Michelle, thanks so much. I hope to see you real soon. And I'll be praying for you during the holidays and enjoy your family. Thank you, Tony. And you as well. Thank you. Well, before we leave, I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. And I want to thank the Finley Project for being such an amazing organization. Please, everyone who's listening to this episode, go ahead, visit thefinleyproject.org, see the amazing things they're doing. I've seen this organization literally save the lives of mothers who lost infants. So to find out more, go to thefinleyproject.org. Thank you, and I will see you again on Tuesday. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts, visit us at theorsiniway.com.